From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. COVID remains mysterious in many ways. Like, why do some people get over it quickly, while others become long haulers, months of fatigue and pain? Scientists at National Jewish Health in Denver are beginning to get answers. We'll speak with a pulmonologist who helped guide the research. He also works with Olympians who have breathing problems separate from COVID. Then, the star-studded satire Don't Look Up is about a comet hurtling towards Earth. The comet's a metaphor for climate change. We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. Okay. Um, Well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. We'll revisit my conversation with the film's co-writer from Denver. He was just nominated for an Oscar. Join the generous team of donors that help make Colorado Public Radio possible. It's affordable and easy to set up a membership. And if you set it up today, you'll get a free bonus gift from CPR. This special offer is available to everyone who helps kick off the fun drive by starting, restarting, or increasing their membership. Supporting Colorado Public Radio is already rewarding. It's just a little more rewarding today. Donate at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Not everyone bounces back after contracting COVID. Symptoms of long COVID include fatigue, trouble breathing, and joint and muscle pain. A study by National Jewish Health in Denver may have turned up a clue as to why some people become long haulers while others don't. Pulmonologist Todd Olin is one of the researchers. Dr. Olin, welcome to the program. Thanks. It's flattering to be here, and I'm happy to be a resource for you. Flattering. Wow, that's a compliment. Uh, I rattled off a few symptoms of long COVID. How would you describe it? Yeah, I, I really like how you captured that. There are a whole spattering of different symptoms that people experience, but the big ones are fatigue out of proportion to the amount of sort of exercise or effort or sort of, you know, energy that you expect to put into something. A lot of people have shortness of breath. Um, A lot of people have dizziness and then, but there it's all over the place where people have, you know, tingly fingers or an inability to exercise how they want or, you know, stuff with their stomach that just doesn't seem to track with any of the respiratory viruses that we had seen previously in our experiences of medical industry. Wow. Some of those are new to me. Tingly fingers, uh, stomach problems, so just like digestive issues? Right. I think people have all sorts of different things. I think the big ones that people tend to complain about, though, are it's really that fatigue and shortness of breath, like sort of what you rattled off right up front. Those are the things that seem to be getting most people. And so folks might do just like menial tasks around the house and find that they just don't have the energy for it. Right. You nailed it. So like a lot of times people, even previously really active people, um, will be wiped out really by the activities of daily living. You know, they, they take the dog for a walk, they take out the dishes, and then they need to sort of lay down for a half an hour because they feel like they just don't have the energy to do it. You direct the Exercise and Performance Breathing Center at National Jewish, and we'll talk more about your work with athletes in a bit. Uh, but first, when you took people's vitals, these long haulers, you did some basic tests I understand there weren't always immediate red flags. Did that surprise you? 
Yeah, that seems to be what a lot of people with long COVID are experiencing as patients. And it's what's really frustrating is they'll they'll come in and they'll have an honest to God complaint. They're feeling something that's really problematic in their world. And the conventional things that we measure, both on the lung side of things and on the heart side of things, look really normal. For example, like spirometry, a measure of airflow coming out of the lungs will very often look normal, an echocardiogram of the heart, something that sort of measures or gives an, an idea of the, the structure and function of the heart will mm-hmm. look normal. And the patients are very frustrated and the doctors just as well, because we're used to getting the, our answers from those studies and other similar studies. And uh, that's not always happening in the patients coming in with long COVID. Gosh, more of the mystery of COVID-19. Uh, before we talk about your findings, how did you find subjects for the research? Uh, there are no, sh- there's no shortage of people coming in that are, you know, complaining of problems and simultaneously willing to be part of the solution where they want to contribute to the knowledge of tomorrow or to help the next person that comes into the clinic. Um, so finding the folks um, was really not so much of a problem. Uh, there's at National Jewish Health, there's a, a really um, established center for the treatment of people that have long COVID. And um, so really in that sense, it wasn't a problem. There are both sort of, there are tons of patients and tons of patients willing to help. I just want to underscore what you said there. There's no shortage of long haulers. I think we tend to think of COVID in terms of how many people has it killed. And uh, that's not a small number, of course. But we have to think about the fact that many who contract COVID will not die, but will have symptoms that persist for months, perhaps years. Uh, And so just to underscore, there is no shortage of COVID long haulers. You're hearing it from a pulmonologist at National Jewish. Okay, so if those immediate tests, the vitals that we think are so revelatory when we see a doctor did not reveal uh, that something was wrong. Uh, what, how, did, how did you find out what was wrong? What, what did your study find? Right. Well, so, so, what, so what we did is it, in response to the observation among patients that uh, many people are having trouble with exercise Um, we took the patients with long COVID and performed exercise tests. And there's a conventional way to do this in hospitals where we'll take people to the point of exhaustion and simultaneously measure what's going on in their heart and their lungs as best we can. And um, what we found was a preliminary, it's really a preliminary finding, but what it looked like was that the muscles of patients, specifically the the portion of muscle cells that process energy, the mitochondria, Hmm. it looked like they weren't processing the energy as efficiently. It would sort of be like if you had a car and you put in all the fuel that you needed. And then when you push down on the gas pedal, it just sort of didn't use the gas as well. And so it looked like the sugar that we use in the mitochondria to generate energy and the fat that we use in mitochondria to generate energy weren't being used as as efficiently as it was in patients that were measured long ago, sort of in a control population. Is it unusual for a virus to change mitochondrial performance? Um, I, I would say 
Probably, yes. I don't think it's unheard of. I think people frequently will have trouble um, with severe illness. I think what's a little bit unusual in this case is that a lot of the people that have long COVID weren't necessarily the ones that had the most severe acute illness. So it, mm -hmm. like to a doctor, it makes a lot of sense to have a patient say that was on a ventilator for three weeks that lost a lot of muscle mass that was um, unconscious for that period of time for three weeks to then come back and really struggle and take several months to recover. What I think is quite a bit different in this case is that people with relatively mild acute symptoms, you know, maybe they felt like they had the flu for three or four days, then are really struggling with trouble with energy, you know, weeks and months later. Okay. That's unsettling. Now that you have at least these preliminary findings, I imagine you'll do some more research, but does this point at all towards treatment? So if you've identified the mitochondria related to muscle function, can you kind of send a drug that way? Yeah, I, that that's the hope. And you nailed it in that there's a lot of steps in between. Like one, one way of thinking about this might be that, um, you know, preliminary findings are sort of like... You, like, uh, for example, a, a high school football quarterback that throws 25 touchdowns or a state champion high school swimmer where those are it's really great when you like hit those points. And in this case, it's great to have a finding. Now, the likelihood that the state champion high school swimmer will then like challenge Ryan uh, Murphy for the world record in 100 backstroke or something is really, really, really unlikely sometimes. And so we need to do a lot more work to understand what this is. Um, and so investigators at the University of Colorado and National Jewish Health and around the country, um, Dr. DeBoer was the lead author on this study, are going to try to follow this up, maybe by you know, getting pieces of the muscle to see what is happening or to measure the, the levels of different molecules in the body, in mm. the people that we had these findings on. Um, and so it takes a lot more to um, go from a preliminary finding to drug development, but that's absolutely the hope. It just, it takes a little bit of time and a little bit of patience, which is frustrating for the patient going through this right now. Indeed. Uh, natural that you'd use an athletic metaphor in describing that because you also direct the Exercise and Performance Breathing Center at National Jewish in Denver. And when we come back, we'll talk with Dr. Todd Olin about a breathing technique he has worked on that can improve some people's athletic performance. This is unrelated to COVID. Uh, how he found his way to the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Denver's love affair with trains is a story of shared dreams and a city on the rise. I think Cal's vision was to build the best rail system in the country. It's also a story of disappointment. It's the commuter rail line that may be finished in time for your grandkids to use. CPR's newest podcast shows how the Denver area went all in on trains and what happened when the plan jumped the track. Ghost Train, everywhere you get your podcasts and in the Colorado Public Radio app. Pulmonologist Dr. Todd Olin is back with us. Before the break, we talked about his research into COVID long haulers. Dr. Olin also directs the Exercise and Performance Breathing Center at National Jewish in Denver. And now we're going to discuss his breathing work, which has benefited some Olympians. And doctor, there's a subset of patients you see who have a condition in which their throats can close up during exercise. Just explain this for us briefly. 
Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting condition. It's called exercise-induced laryngeal obstruction, and it's probably one of the few things that you could diagnose over the radio. So, so what happens is as people are exercising at very intense work rates, you know, where their heart rates are in that 170, 180, like right at sort of their limit range, um, the vocal cords, which are right at the top of your windpipe, tend to close up and it makes a noise that sounds kind of like, <sighs> and it's, it's this something that you can really identify from, you know, several meters away and people it's, it's scary. It really limits performance. It's frequently misdiagnosed as asthma because that's usually the first breathing problem that comes to mind mm -hmm. for everybody. Um, but it's a different condition, so it doesn't respond to the medicines that we conventionally use for asthma. And so at National Jewish, you've, you've found a way to help those people breathe more easily when they're exercising. How so? Yeah, so what we do is first to diagnose the condition, what we'll do is we'll perform a special customized exercise test where in addition to the conventional measurements, we'll have a very small three millimeter camera that will help us visualize the throat and we can see the problem in real time. Huh. And then to fix it, what we do is we use the same sort of technology and we teach people how to breathe while they can simultaneously look at their throat with this camera that is... Um, mounted in place. And so we it's just very, very, very technical um, teaching that we, but with using biofeedback from a camera um, that's helping to visualize their throat. So it's down, their camera's down their throat? I just want to be clear. Yeah. So the camera, we numb up a patient's nose and we thread a three millimeter camera through their nose. They can see their vocal cords in real time on a screen, you know, two feet in front of their face they'll be sprinting on a bicycle and then we're simultaneously coaching them on how to breathe. And in real time, they can see what's happening and make adjustments, you know, and, and it's a team effort where we're working with the patient to see what works best for them. Um, but we have a lot of guidance on how to do that just because we do it all the time. Is it responsible for us to try that kind of breathing on the radio or should it be in a clinic? Um, it's, it, well, it's really challenging to, it would sort of be like me describing how to swim butterfly over the radio. That, that, <laughs> I think that might not be the, okay. that might not be the easiest thing, but the, the, the concept is that we have patients um, intentionally block the air that they're inhaling by putting their lip against their top teeth just for a split second, maybe, you know, point, you know, one, three, one, five seconds, something like that. And then in the same inhalation, they'll let off on the resistance and the air will rush in and the vocal cords will compensate for what the patient is doing with their lip in a really favorable way. And it's, it's something we discovered totally by mistake. Oh. Um, but it, sometimes <laughs> that, that's where the, the, the innovation comes from is just a lucky, a lucky mistake. Now I mentioned that you, have taught this technique to Olympians because you've seen this condition, which we can shorten as ELO, I think, uh, in Olympians. But you also see this in kind of weekend warriors. Uh, how common is it? Yeah, we think it's about three to five percent of young, healthy individuals. Certainly other folks can get it as well. The vast majority of people that come in tend to be in their teens and 20s, mostly because those are the folks that are involved in organized sports. But at the same time, we've definitely seen patients in their 50s and 60s that have the condition as well. And, and it, you know, it's something to think about in anyone that really identifies as active and can't do what they want to do and 
sort of feels limited by breathing, it's worth it to think about it in these folks. It's fascinating to me that the sound of it, I guess, is so telltale that you could diagnose it over the radio or perhaps, you know, watching an athlete on television. Yeah, we've had a couple of those where I sort of sent out a timely email just having seen somebody on TV, for sure. Of course, the Winter Olympics are underway in Beijing. Uh, But take us back to the Summer Games in Tokyo. You recently wrote about some of the challenges you experienced working at a hotel there. It was where athletes and other Olympic workers in Tokyo went if they tested positive for COVID. Uh, Just briefly tell us about the challenges you met there. Right. So one of the most inspiring and amazing experiences in a lifetime would be to sort of set foot in the Olympic Village and in any games. And I hope to be able to do it again. But I was um, part of a team of about 20 doctors from all over the world. And our job was to take care and monitor the athletes that had tested positive. And you can imagine that situation where isolation in the city of Denver on, you know, a a Wednesday in the middle of February is lousy enough. But now if you've trained your whole life for this one moment, you've tested negative for COVID twice just to get on the plane, you fly to Tokyo and you test positive at the airport and then taken to a hotel, not able to compete in your event. Um, You can imagine that's just the most crushing experience that anyone would ever, you know, have in in life or sort of in that top tier of things. And it's the same if you're a coach or a trainer or a support staff member, because this is what you've professionally been working for for decades. And it's just taken away from you in a heartbeat. Um, For the most part, uh, were the patients that you saw there, the athletes, the coaches, et cetera, uh, did they recover? Um, yeah, I, I think we saw them in the acute phase and the vast majority really were either asymptomatic or, or more frequently had mild symptoms, kind of cold or flu type symptoms. Um, the bigger challenges sort of beyond the, the immediate medical needs were it was more of a mental health type of situation where people's, like in a lot of cases, their livelihood was taken away from them in a, in a just really in a moment. And they were going through this acute phase of processing that and just sort of the human side of that was very, very difficult. And I think it's what you're seeing in the news right now where, um, you know, athletes and other members of the sort of the Olympic movement that are staying in these hotels are struggling with their living situation. Um, And it's, it's just a very, very difficult human thing to uh, be a part of. Yeah. I mean, there have already been complaints from athletes in Beijing about their isolation Uh, in the face of COVID. Doctor, thank you so much for sharing these experiences with us. No, thanks for being, like helping me share with the world. And thanks for sort of getting the news out. And I admire your mission. Dr. Todd Olin directs the Exercise and Performance Breathing Center at National Jewish Health in Denver. And still to come, a movie to watch, just don't look up. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. One of the hardest tricks in free skiing is the double cork 1620. Yeah, so it's two backflips and then four and a half full 360s. Burke Irving is really comfortable getting air on skis, and now he's one of 23 Coloradans competing on Team USA at the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Hear how Burke Irving launches into that move and see a picture of him in action at CPR.org.
The film Don't Look Up is a scathing satire about people's response to climate change, except a comet hurtling towards Earth stands in for global warming. Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence play the astronomers who discover it. Meryl Streep is the U.S. president who can barely be bothered for a briefing. Her son, played by Jonah Hill, is chief of staff. Using Gauss's method of orbital determination and the average astrometric uncertainty of 0.04 arc seconds, we, we then ask... Whoa, 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 what the hell I'm is so what? bored. Just tell us what <laughs> it is. What? Seriously, stop. stop what, what Dr. Mindy is trying to say is that there's a comet headed directly towards Earth. And according to NASA's computers, that object is going to hit the Pacific Ocean at 62 miles due west off the coast of Chile. And then what happens? Like a tidal wave? No. It will be far more catastrophic. There will, there will be mile-high tsunamis fanning out all across the globe. If this comet makes impact, it will have the power of, of, of a billion Hiroshima bombs. There will be magnitude... 10 or 11 earthquakes. You're, you're breathing weird. It's, it's, uh, it's making me uncomfortable. I'm sorry, I'm just trying to articulate the science. I know, but it's like so stressful. I like trying to like listen. I to don't what... think you understand the gravity of the situation. The writers of Don't Look Up include Denver journalist David Sirota, and they do not imagine that this event brings humanity together. On Tuesday, the writers were nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. I spoke with David Sirota in December. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Why a comedy? Well, I, you know, it's a very serious topic, and it's, it's, a, it's a disturbing topic. And there's, there's a way to discuss that topic uh, in a way where we can at, at once laugh at ourselves, but also realize that we sometimes try to distract ourselves from real, basic, scientific truths that are uncomfortable and troubling. And so part of the trick, I think, of this movie is to uh, use comedy to raise really deep questions about whether we as a society are willing uh, to process uh, and constructively act on facts that make us uncomfortable. There's a lot of laughs in this movie, yeah. but this movie delivers a really important message. Indeed, some laugh-out-loud moments. The president complains how terrible the comet's timing is coming around the midterms. <laughs> <laughs> uh, contributors to her campaign get access to the war room if they are donors at the Platinum Eagle level. <laughs> you know, I don't think that the words climate change are ever uttered in the film. In fact, I watched it and thought, gosh, this also makes a commentary potentially on the science around COVID-19 and whether that is trusted. So uh, is it sort of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge that this is a climate change film? Well, I think you're speaking to the to the deeper issue here, which is some people have said, is this this is a movie about climate change? And certainly there's messages on that. Some people have asked, is this a, me a set of messages about the pandemic and our, our, our debate about science? And I think it's actually a, a movie about how we communicate with each other. Uh, the question that this movie asks is, are we as a society able to process basic facts and constructively act on those facts? Or are those facts always going to be cannon fodder in a culture war, in a partisan war, 
in a media war. And I want to live in a a world where basic facts are assessed on their merits, and we as a society act on those facts to try to solve problems. But I think we all realize that we we do live in a world now where every single fact uh, becomes a way to argue for our side or feel like part of one political tribe or the other, Hmm. or to really... uh, 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 make a point or nail our opponents. And what we need to do now uh, on so many of these crises is step back from that desire to fight with one another uh, and to actually try to stipulate some basic facts. But that's not where we are right now. And I think this movie tries to spotlight that deeper problem on every issue. Our guest is Denver journalist David Sirota, who's now an Academy Award nominee for Best Original Screenplays for the movie Don't Look Up. I mean, just to add to the list of stars, Timothy Chalamet, Ariana Grande, and, you know, I mentioned that this is a somewhat stinging commentary of the news media, television in particular, Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett play prominent co-anchors of a show called The Daily Rip. How big is this thing? Could it like destroy someone's house? Is that possible? It's somewhere between six and nine kilometers across. So it, it's big. It would damage the the entire planet, not just a house. You know. The entire planet. Okay. Well, as it's damaging, will it hit this one house in particular that's right on the coast of New Jersey? It's my ex-wife's house. I needed to be hit. Can oh, we make you, that happen? You and Shelly have a great relationship. <laughs> no, you stop. Listen, in all you fa- need to stop. I will, but in all fairness, I actually paid for the step. house. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. Are we uh, are we not being clear? We're trying to tell you that the entire planet is about to be destroyed. Okay. Okay. Um, well, it's, um, you know, just something we do around here. You know, we just keep the bad news light. Right. It helps the medicine go down. It helps the medicine go down. Uh, David Sirota, how much does your own experience as a journalist inform a scene like that? Uh, a lot. I mean, I, I look, I, I do a lot of reporting on very serious uh, topics, uh, you know, about government, about politics. Uh, and look, you put out reporting into a world that often frivolizes everything. And it can, as a journalist, it can drive you crazy. And I'm sure people listening to this, it drives them crazy that 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 serious news often gets buried by the more fun, light stuff that distracts us. But I think when we look at crises as serious as climate change, we have to be willing to, in the in the words of the movie, we have to actually be willing to look up. We shouldn't avert our eyes. And my the hope is, is that this movie uses the techniques of a big blockbuster movie, a big blockbuster comedy, to both uh, provide an entertaining and enjoyable experience, but also one that makes people ask questions about what we can do in all of our communities to, to, to fix all of the crises in front of us. Uh, As I said, Leonardo DiCaprio plays a scientist who helps discover this comet. He's also a producer of Don't Look Up. And at one point, uh, DiCaprio's character has an on-air meltdown. I mean, he's just had it with humanity's stupidity. And David, it reminded me of this famous scene from another movie, 1976's Network. We know things are bad, worse than bad. 
They're crazy. It's like everything everywhere is going crazy, so we don't go out anymore. We sit in the house, and slowly the world we're living in is getting smaller, and all we say is, please, at least leave us alone in our living rooms. Let me have my toaster and my TV and my steel-belted radios, and I won't say anything. Just leave us alone. Well, I'm not going to leave you alone. I want you to get mad. I don't want you to protest. I don't want you to write. I don't want you to write to your congressman because I wouldn't know what to tell you to write. I don't know what to do about the depression and the inflation and the Russians and the crime in the street. All I know is that first, you've got to get mad. You've got to say, I'm a human being. My life has value. It's funny to listen to that clip in the context of everything going on today. But was that an inspiration, David Sirota? Uh, look, Network is one of the most amazing movies ever made, and that is is one of the most iconic speeches that's ever been in, in a movie. And I think that, in a sense, uh, there is a, a scene in the movie that that essentially references that or rhymes with that. Uh, and and I think that what we're actually saying in this movie is that people's feelings of um, of uh, of disillusionment are real. They are legitimate. Uh, they they are are righteous, uh, and that we need to actually uh, uh, understand uh, why we feel this way and actually try to take action. I mean, you are not crazy for thinking that uh, for for being upset that so much of our political discourse, our media discourse, isn't focused on the real issues of the day. You are not alone. Uh, you are not wrong to feel that way. Uh, and now the question is, as we move forward into, into even more intense crises, what can we actually do about it? And my hope is, is that this movie makes us all think about what we can do in our own lives and collectively together as a society uh, to actually make real positive change on so many things. And, and I want to make one more point here. Yeah. One of the things in that speech that, that you'll see in the movie that Leo makes that's, that's like that, that speech you just said is that these are problems that we can fix if we act now, that the asteroid is headed towards Earth. And there's a point that is made in the movie that says we could have averted, we can avert the asteroid uh, if we act soon. We can fix, we can still combat climate change if we act now. The danger is to continue distracting ourselves. And I hope that's what this movie leaves people with, that message. Denver journalist David Sirota, he's a co-writer of Don't Look Up. We spoke in December. He was nominated this week for an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner.